Welcome to All About Art. My name is Alexandra, and I'm an art historian, curator, and writer. Within this podcast, topics relating to art history, cultural policy, the art sector, as well as a large range of other art-related topics will be covered. Conducting critical discussions, having entertaining exchanges, or just enjoying some relaxing chats? All About Art is where you'll find it all. Join me in exploring and developing cultural discourse. Welcome to another episode of All About Art. In this episode, I sat down with art critic, comedian, and presenter Verity Babs. We speak about the topic of being your authentic self in the arts and why we often struggle with it in our sector. I also ask her about Art Laughs, an initiative she founded that brings art-themed comedy events to museums, galleries, fairs, and cultural spaces. Listen on to hear me ask Verity how she comes up with her jokes, why she thinks being authentic in the arts can be so tough at times, and in what ways neurodiverse contributors and audiences are instrumental in our sector. We also both open up on struggles surrounding mental health, with the arts providing an ever-growing workload and an ever-diminishing pay. Thank you, Verity, for coming on the podcast and having such a fun, open, and honest chat with me. Before I dive in, I wanted to let you lovely listeners know that All About Art is on Patreon. So if you want some behind-the-scenes content, maybe a bit of merch, the chance to get one-on-ones with me and my guests, or you're simply wanting to support this project, I would be absolutely thrilled if you decided to sign up. You can do so through the link in the show notes. I also wanted to say thank you to those who have already signed up. Your support means the world, and it makes the further production, improvement, and growth of the podcast possible. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Verity. I am sitting here with you in Southampton, just an hour's train ride outside of London in your lovely home to record this episode. Instead of an interview structure per se, you and I wanted to have a discussion on a few topics, all relating to finding your authentic voice and also being yourself in the arts. Because as you and I have talked about quite a bit in the past, our sector is a difficult one to navigate, especially in regard to that. Before we dive in though, I first wanna ask you about your background so that listeners can get to know you. How did you get into the arts? Thank you so much for having me. I studied history of art at Oxford um, between 2016 and 2019 and then left university and uh, moved to London to to find my fortune. But foolishly, that was in February 2020. So I moved to London and was promptly imprisoned in uh, in a cupboard in Peckham. And I'd moved to London and got a job with, uh, with Rise Art, who sell art online. And I was their artist liaison. And then I was an assistant curator working with their artists. And during that role... I was branching out into into freelance things, so freelance writing and uh, starting in presenting. And during the first lockdown, I started what would later become Art Laughs as it now is. It was um, a series of interviews on my YouTube channel with comedians who I had gigged with previously um, in university. I was doing lots of improv and stand-up uh, in Oxford with the Oxford Imps or with the Review. And so I'd met these amazing people. And so in lockdown, had a series of interviews with them. We had great people do it. We had like Jenny Eclair did it, Rosie Jones, Leo Reich, um, Tanya Moore, all sorts of folk who I would get them to pick an artwork of their choice. And we'd uh, start the interview talking about that. They didn't need to know anything about it. Some people chose album artworks, posters on their bedroom walls as, as children. And we spoke about that. And then Art Last developed into a live show which I took to Edinburgh in 2022. And now it offers all sorts of different formats to arts and heritage spaces and art fairs, uh, improv in paintings archives, uh, art themed stand-up, uh, funny guided tours, all sorts of things. So I moved away from my role at Rise Art to eventually kind of going fully freelance uh, in the spring of this year to focus on uh, presenting work and uh, getting art laughs off the ground. I started Art Laughs because at the point where we were doing the videos, I'd already done 
freelance work or internships or different bits of work experience in the art world for a couple of years and I just thought it was dreadful <laughs> like <laughs> that the art world is so serious and um it has to present a front to keep itself alive basically like if absolutely if, if anyone in the art world admitted that like maybe it is a bit silly that this is sold for millions of pounds and like maybe you don't need a PhD in the Dutch golden age to be able to be a gallery assistant. Like then the whole thing, <laughs> then the whole thing would crumble. So everyone has to be so serious. It's like everyone's holding on to this, like this group secret. It, it has to take itself seriously in order to survive. I am not someone who takes myself very seriously and found a lot of the more formal art world environments I worked in very stressful and very I was having to do a lot of masking in order to like get through those situations just because it was not conducive to how I actually behave and what I actually think and then it just it just didn't suit me at all so art last I think was an attempt to for me to have fun talking about art again and a lot of the time my favorite my favorite way to talk about art is to talk about art to people who don't like art don't know anything about art and just to make a joke out of it to yeah, enjoy it again. And then as those videos went on and we turned into these live events, I was realizing that people were coming to the comedy shows because they like comedy and then leaving and being like, oh, actually, like, I, do think I, do, I, I do think I could comment on why I like something or why I don't like something anymore. Like I would take friends of mine to openings and they'd be really nervous. And then I'd say, oh, you know, which one do you like? I often go around and I'm like, what would you, if you had to buy one of these, what would you buy? And they'd all get really tense and they'd be like, well, I don't know anything about it, so I can't really say. So well, ignore that you know what do you like and then they'd sort of sheepishly say well I quite like that one um but I don't think I've got like I don't know if why I like it is the right answer and it turned out that they liked it because it was massive or because the colors were nice or like <laughs> oh the woman in the picture reminds them of their mother or whatever it is and having to say to them like no that's a that's the right answer that's fine you don't need to know about postmodernism in order to to like art or to get art so eventually the live events became more about the fact that I think it's a joyous thing to see people go, oh, no, actually, I'm allowed to like that mm -hmm. or, or not like it. I think that one of the things we in Art Laughs is uh, look at contemporary artworks that make people cross. So we'll look at Damien Hirst's shark or Emin's bed. Yeah. And then we'll just sit around in a circle and go, I think that's rubbish or, oh, that's great. And why? And um, yeah. and yeah, just um, starting it so that people could have a chat about art in a way that was that felt quite separate to the way that the art world speaks about art. Earlier this year, I think it was earlier this year or late last year, I can't remember, but I came to one of your Art Laughs events and I remember that after the stand-up performances, there was a live discussion and audience members could kind of take part. And I remember that everyone was talking about the Banksy, the girl with the balloon that shredded and is now Love is in the Bin. And I like promptly stuck my hand up and I was like stuck. I promptly stuck my hand up and was like, I was there when it, when it was shredded. Yeah. I was in the room and it was so cool to like talk about it, share my experience, listen to people laugh and just tear it to pieces, but also engage with it in a way that was really interesting to see how mm -hmm. different people viewed something that was such a big deal in the art world and in the art market at the time. Yeah, I mean, up in Edinburgh, we had small kids or, you know, randomly silent audience members who, when it came to the panel discussion, would get really feisty about a thing that they really liked, really disliked. and. And that was so lovely and that's sort of what its purpose was. When I took it to Edinburgh, I was like, well, maybe this this might be the last thing this project does. This might this be- This was the fringe, wasn't the, it? Yeah, at, fringe. at the fringe. It was like, this might be the last thing. It might be that, you know, we've done the interviews and we've uh, and we've done a couple of gigs and this is like a, a farewell. And I just realized that people were having a really nice time and I was having a really nice time. And the comedians, even those who were like the most frightened of art were having a good time and, and it was bringing something to them and that's the joyous thing I think about it is seeing everyone get riled up about about what they like or don't like the, yeah even people who are massively familiar with that artist or that painting or that uh, genre get something from it yeah new perspectives mm. combining what we talked about in relation to comedy and moving into the topic of being your authentic self in mm. the arts why do you think that it's such a big topic in our sector I think that this idea of authenticity plays into, I was going to say all parts of the industry, but I don't necessarily think that's true. But I think for artists in particular and anyone who's creating anything, so whether that's content creators or presenters or anyone who presents themselves as an individual who can provide something, whether that's a painting or, you know, I can make some reels for you, or I can write something for you, is there are, there are loads of artists 
and there are loads of presenters and there are loads of writers and they're all really, really talented. So why should someone pick you? That kind of comes down to, it's, it's you know, like how do you market yourself in a, in a massively saturated industry or massively saturated market? So a lot of the time working with artists, when I worked with artists in the past, um, or looking at the writing they've done about their work or their portfolio, it's like, right, so you're presenting yourself as this thing, uh, but thousands of people do that. Why, why is your um, you know, abstract landscape worth buying above someone else's? So you, you really have to like look in, in, inside yourself to be like, who am I? Why is it important that this landscape was done by me? Or like, why is it important that I present that program rather than someone else? Or, so I think a lot of any industry where you have to market yourself, you have to have a really strong idea of what that is. And I think that as technology develops, which means we have access to easier access to more people's work or more people's profiles, whatever it is, it's probably more important than ever to have a really clear idea of who you are and what you bring. Um, whereas maybe when there were fewer artists one might have been aware of, you could probably get under the radar by just being very good at what you do. But now that's sort of not enough. And I just want to chat about neurodivergence in mm. the arts as well. You gave a seminar for the London Drawing Group on the topic of female neurodivergence through art history and the lack of its representation in the arts. And you also advocate for ensuring that digital content is suitable for neurodiverse audiences. I would love to hear your take on the topic and also why it's instrumental in keeping the arts inclusive and accessible. Honestly, I think it's almost like the art laughs thing is it's all come from a massively selfish point of view where I just want my life to be better and easier. Uh, <laughs> um, and Isn't that all the good projects though is that you see an issue that you have encountered yourself mm -hmm. and then you go about trying to fix it? I yeah. think that that's the best way to do it. Yeah, I think like, as long as I put my hands up and say it. So, so for me, I received an ADHD diagnosis last May and it completely um, floored me for a bit. And then I was very sad, then I was very angry and you know, doing the whole <laughs> slightly like the grieving patterns thing. Because it was like, oh, suddenly loads of stuff makes sense in terms of that's why I really struggled in that work environment or that's why that work relationship went downhill. Or I, I put a lot of things um, that now turn out to be uh, ADHD down to being an only child. Um, <laughs> a lot of times like, I'm just, uh, I've just got no experience dealing with conflict because I'm an only child. And that's why I get so upset in, uh, upset in uh, conflict situations or like I never learned how to share. And that's why, and that's why I cry all the time. Um, so I put a lot of it down to personal failure and being an only child. And it was just interesting with that new lens, I guess, to go back to a full-time job and go back to visiting galleries and trying to keep up with what um you know what the instagram algorithm wants from you and what you know now you've got to do like big linkedin posts and having structure and being disciplined these are all things i really really struggled with so getting to look at that through a lens of actually no there are ways in which i am i am less able to do that than the people i'm comparing myself to so there's no real point comparing myself to them anymore because um everyone has been dealt such a vastly different hand of cards in life that there's there's zero point in trying to trying to compare yourself and i think yeah looking through the neurodivergent lens at the art world has been interesting because i realize there's loads of things that we we can easily frame as like this is really good for accessibility like this is really good for uh, neurodivergent audiences this is really uh, this is great for for diverse audiences that are just fundamentally good things to do and make loads of sense um Back in during lockdown, lots of galleries invested loads of time and money in doing digital 3D mock-ups of exhibitions, so that people who couldn't go to the couldn't couldn't go to the galleries because they were shut could see them. And then when the world opened up again, they just stopped doing that, which is it just seems bananas. Because if you've gone to all the effort to do an exhibition, wouldn't you just want that to last longer to give more people the opportunity to see it who don't live in that city? You know it. it I think after lockdown as well, I just realised quite how like London-centric everything is. It's like, well, if you don't live in London, how would you ever see that? And and things that they did in the name of accessibility for COVID, that then they just stopped doing. But it seems like it just, you know, it gives your projects a longer shelf life and things like that. Or, um, yeah, making your, making your website better readable for autistic audiences or for dyslexic audiences just makes it easier to read for everyone. That these aren't, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think definitely um, ignorantly 
it took receiving my own diagnosis to think about those things, which was a, which was a, a wake up call. Now that we've talked about your work and we've talked a bit more about what you do, let's talk about mental health. Mm. You and I wanted to be really open about this and this whole issue of an ever growing workload and an ever diminishing pay in the mm. arts. Where should we even start? Mm. Because maybe to kick us off, we can talk about your move from London to Southampton and the feeling of getting out of the city. Mm. Because I jumped at the chance to come and see you when you offered for me to come down and visit and just yeah. to get out of the city for a little bit. I lived in London for a year and a half um, at the foolish time of doing that between 2020 and 2021. But I, I grew up somewhere uh, super rural, like... Um, uh, no bus route, no shop, but two churches, kind of rural. Yeah. You um, always say that uh, you're a, a woman from Northampton who lives in Southampton. Yeah, that's a, that's the <laughs> problem. I, I I did a comedy show where they wanted a, a biography, and I said um, Verity Babs is from the Hamptons, brackets uh, is from Northampton and lives in Southampton. But then they published the biography and they got rid of the brackets, so it was like they're just going to think I'm American. <laughs> um, so um, so I stopped saying that because it's um, it's. Uh, it doesn't always land. Um, but yes, yeah, so I so was in, in uh, rural Northamptonshire. And, and I had friends of mine who were, who were such London people and they were destined to go to London and they were going to, you know, that was always their plan. They were going to get out of the countryside and they were going to go to London. And they are now such London people and they could never live anywhere else. And I moved to London and just found the whole thing, even in lockdown where you couldn't go anywhere or see anyone, found the whole thing so boggling. Because I think that even though London is massive, and there were times when I was living there when I would travel an hour and a half to get to an opening that I'd be at for 20 minutes and then come back, which you'd never do anywhere else. But in London, there was always this sense of there are there are 20 openings happening this evening that people you know are at and you are not at. And people who are going to, you know, make deals, uh, hire people for new things, give you an opportunity, they're there and you're not. Um, or... You know, I, I, th I think that the comparison culture is so much closer there because it's a sense of like, well, we're all, uh, not to get too, you know, Molly May about it, where she's like, we've all got the same 24 hours. It's like, <laughs> if, if everyone's in London, we've all got the same London, which is obviously uh, not true, but there is that sense of like, well, everyone else is at that opening or uh, everyone else got invited to that private dinner, private view, private dinner, that's even more private than the private view or whatever it is. I found myself comparing myself so much and I found it very difficult to feel properly part of a community having not gone to university at one of the London universities, I found a lot of the, the artistic communities, which were very lovely and, and lots of lovely individuals. But fundamentally, they had all been to um, UAL together or they'd all been to uh, to RCA or they'd all been wherever. And, and it's very difficult to properly integrate yourself in, in, in those environments. Um, so when my partner started doing his PhD down in Southampton. I moved here as well and it was just the most remarkable thing. I think uh, as soon as I moved to Southampton I realised I'd completely burnt myself out in London and was quite all over the shop for a little bit and being in Southampton has been so wonderful. There's an amazing arts community here in Southampton which I didn't know anything about until I moved here. And uh, I found out a bunch yeah. about it today. <laughs> we've been we've been on tour. Everyone's yeah, we been, sure have. It's been gorgeous and yeah it's so lovely feel very yeah, welcomed and you know done work for some people and are just um and it's yeah it's definitely been good because there are things that I see and like oh god there's that opening and everyone I know is there and I go yep yeah, I don't live there even even though it would only take me an hour and 15 minutes to get in into Waterloo from Southampton it's like well I, I don't live there it's not my problem that I, I couldn't possibly so it's been very good for me in terms of that um that comparison yeah I think and as um and these aspects of FOMO mm -hmm. where uh, so fear of missing out where you take a different perspective to it mm. because you live out here. Mm. And I think it's so incredibly, it's so incredibly difficult because you see these things and like, it's not only the, you know, oh, all of these people are at this opening and oh, I couldn't make it or I can make it or I don't want to go or whatever. It's as you mentioned, these like private dinners or other private things that you don't get invited to where it mm. actually like, you're like, why didn't I get invited to it? Do, you know, and then you start thinking about your own mm. work and image and how that's viewed in the art world. And then the yeah. London art world is such a, it's such a big, vast community, but it's also such a bubble at the same time. Yeah. It's so strange to explain. That's the worry about it as well, is that like um, any time that you think you might have even possibly at all done something wrong in the art world, you immediately feel like everyone knows about it and you'll never work again. Um, 
And I've certainly had that over the years where it's like, oh, yes, I seem to, yeah, I'm no longer working for them or, you know, uh, there's been some kind of miscommunication or, or something, you know, some re- working relationship is broken down. And it's like, well, it's only a matter of time before the police come and put me in art jail. That, like, I'm never going to work again. This is dreadful. My, na- my name is in disrepute. Like your reputation yeah. is going uh, to be destroyed. As, uh, first of all, as if I- I'm that important. And also, like... <laughs> People have done way worse things and still can be directors that, of whatever. <laughs> and that's the thing. Is, like, I think you, and you have to play that game of I will never wrong anyone in order to climb this ladder. But I had no interest in climbing the ladder. I had no interest in... Um, in being polite and uh, and quiet in times when I should have been polite and quiet. In turn, you do have to wrong some people in order to climb a ladder. Mm. You have to you have to do certain things sometimes make certain decisions, not necessarily on purpose, not necessarily betray someone or let someone down, but mm. you can't please everyone. You yeah. can't say yes, you can't like if someone asks me to be on a project and I don't fully believe in it and I don't actually like what they're doing, I'm going to have to Mm. not do it even if you know even if I said maybe before or whatever like it's gonna have to it's gonna have to I'm gonna have to disappoint someone and I think part of the the whole thing of authenticity is being like this is what I like to do and what I stand for and and what I'm good at and and whatever and I'm putting your foot down and being like I'm not really interested in playing that in uh, playing that the London art world game anymore because even when I have had these insights into like the inner workings of the of the London art world, or I've been to these post-private view, private dinners or private drinks, or these the me- actual private yeah meetings things. at meetings at people's Mayfair luxury mansions or whatever yeah it's always god awful. It's always just the worst kind of <laughs> just the worst kind of conversations of like under the table deals for who's getting a solo show next and you know just money is everything and who you know and what you know and and I had no interest in in even pretending to to engage with that um and uh and I'd certainly be earning more money if I if if I was willing to do that I'd be earning a lot more money if I was willing to um (laughs) to play the game but um yeah I just found it uh impossible to keep up with and not sort of drive yourself into the ground trying to keep up with yeah the the commercial art world yeah because I think we do have to differentiate here between the commercial arts and kind of oh yeah lovely 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 big museums and galleries that own paintings by people who are dead you yeah you go also also problematic they do a lot of shitty things oh yeah other than the shitty things like go (laughs) off um (laughs) yeah yeah the like museums aren't well, I don't know. Maybe they, I don't work they're, in museums. So they're, bad in a, they're bad in a different way. And that's, another, that's a whole other episode. Um, but yeah, the commercial galleries, which are run by independently wealthy middle-aged men who are hire recent graduates and completely rinse them dry uh, for, the, for, the, for the cheap labor and are just deeply unpleasant to anyone who's not also in their like, private, private members club is like, how does anyone have a chance without also being a pretty reprehensible person as well (laughs) yeah I I don't know I think it it weirdly because like I'm thinking about because I I obviously work in a in a gallery and um so thinking (laughs) just massively just like Alexandra is also reprehensible (laughs) (laughs) um I I just think that uh, it, it is really interesting because thinking about moving into different parts of the art world like the commercial arts or the non-commercial like non-profit and it still is such a prevalent who you know culture. That's something that I talked about in my TED talk. Like it's not a secret. Mm. It's not something that I want to not touch on. It's something that is really important to talk about because a lot of jobs that are offered, they don't even get to the public before they get filled. Mm. And it's not because people don't want to offer the opportunity to everyone or things like that. But if you think about the time and effort that goes into recruiting or even hiring a recruiting agency, you know that they take like, I think it's like 30% of like someone's um, yearly salary that they end up hiring mm. or something like that. Like it's it's a really big amount. So a gallery, if they're using a recruitment agency, they're going to be putting something like that in there. Like it's all important to think about when it comes to 
fulfilling roles. And so often people go off of who other people know or recommendations, or sometimes it's the client's kid. Mm. Like it does happen. It does. I'm not saying that I've experienced it personally, But at the same time, you know, it's, I know of people who have worked in other galleries who have really, you know, who've told stories like that and who've said, like, I'm really disappointed because I saw this or saw that. Or like, you know, I personally have applied to museums and different nonprofit galleries. And honestly, not one of them gave me an interview. Mm. Not one. Not one. And there's always those job interviews that are like, you don't even need to have any qualifications. We're just after someone who's massively passionate and um, is a self-starter and can um, and you can see projects through and you apply. And inevitably, they choose someone with a PhD. So if you want someone with a PhD, just say it. Yeah. Don't waste and then I won't waste my don't time. Don't waste applying. everyone else's time. And I mean, or like um, we're paying twenty-two k, and it's a master's required, PhD preferred. Mm. And I keep like that is one of the best examples that I can think of. It's like. Sorry, but no, mm. I'm not. No, I'm just not going to do that. I can't even pay my. I can't even pay my rent if I'm earning twenty two k a year. I did an interview. Well, I did an internship. Um, only lasted a couple of weeks. Um, when I first graduated, and it was advertised online as paid, um, but didn't give any more detail. And I turned up to the interview, and they were very nice to me, and they seemed to be enjoying uh, the, the conversation we were having. And then at the interview, said, "You do know this is unpaid." But, you know, I was 21 and trying to get a job and this seemed like a really good way in. And it was like, well, I get, I guess. So like they've, you know, they, they trick you into it. You know, I was one of two interns, one of whom was the son of a friend of one of these, one of the people high up in the gallery. And so it's no surprise that on the day of the first private view, I was stood in the corner selling catalogues and this other uh, intern was talking to clients and walking around the room and uh, sharing drinks with clientele and stuff it's like well yeah no wonder because they are the they're the child of a contact and I mean the there's definitely a difference between um yeah sort of nepo baby stuff and um <laughs> and, and networking because I'd be absolutely nowhere without work and opportunities that have come through people recommending me yeah and, me and, 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 and that sort of thing and it's not necessarily a direct um like who are your parents or who are friends of your parents but it's like if you especially through social media affords you the opportunity to make contact like you and I met through Instagram and I've met really brilliant people through Instagram who um may have later on been speaking to someone who says we're looking for a presenter or we're looking for a writer and then they've they've mentioned me so that so even that is who you know, and there is an element of who you know which you need. You need to know people, and actually the power to do that is is partly in your hands. And some people can massively benefit from the fact that they they technically quote unquote knew those people when they were in utero because they were the the friends of their parents or whatever. That some of those networks are, some of those networks come with the person, uh, like they're built in, and other networks you have to build yourself. I think where Um, we can differentiate is that one of them is earned and one of them isn't. mm. Because I'm personally, uh, I'm not going to stick my neck out or recommend somebody if I don't believe in them and what they do. And if I don't see that what they do, that they're a motivated person, like I'm not going to recommend someone in my circle for an internship or a gallery assistant position or something like that, unless I truly believe that Mm. they're going to bring their best to the table Mm. and that they're going to, you know, take that opportunity and run with it. And so I think that the people who have given me chances in the past, they also believed that I would do a good job. Mm. Like when I started at Sotheby's, the boss that had hired me, I got the, um, I got the interview because I emailed someone at Sotheby's Mm. who was from Salzburg and me also being from Salzburg, I, I was like, can I, can we go for a coffee? And she, she took the time to go for a coffee with me. And um, then she recommended me to the client services, the head of client services at the time. Mm. And I got an interview with her and she really liked the way that I spoke, the way that I, you know, presented myself. And she said, great, we'd love to have you on board casually, you know, a couple of hours a week or whatever. And she gave me that chance. She gave me that foot in the door. Mm. And you know, I think it, this is such a minimal, or I guess this is a, it's not really the best example because I didn't really prove any type of work ethic, but I did prove initiative. Your proactivity. My that, proactivity. Yeah. And I proved 
sociability. I proved how I can present myself, which is important in a client services slash reception role. Mm. So I proved all of those things in that I took initiative and showed up and dressed nice and really just did my best. Mm. And, um, and that got me my first job in the art world, which has basically, you know, defined the trajectory of my career Mm. after that. I actually love it if people contact me and they say why they're contacting me. Mm. Um, What I really love, like, and this is how, like I say people should approach me this way if they want my advice, but also I approach people this way if I want their advice. And that is with respect and um, with respect for their time and with the knowledge that you are not entitled to Mm. anyone's advice or time. Mm. So if someone says, hi, I'd really love to talk to you about podcasting. Do you think I could take you out for a coffee sometime and just pick your brain for like a half an hour or an hour? Then I know what to expect. I know what they want from me. Oh, hey, I'd love for you to come by the studio. I'd love for you to see some of my work. Fine. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, let's do it. You know, it's if people have questions and, and things like that, I'd, I'd love it if they approach me. And I've had very good experiences with people who I've approached. Some people never write me back some people say they don't have time but like 90% of the time people are so up for giving advice and like I recently had a friend who I work with or I'm going to be working with in an official capacity later on this year but uh who I also work with on a volunteering basis we went out for a coffee and she just gave me the best advice and it was it was so instrumental in how I decided to see myself and my worth and and you know just in a professional sense, I think it's so important to have these exchanges with people. And so you have to start somewhere by putting yourself out there and asking to have these exchanges yeah. with people. And you never That's know great. you never know when these things are gonna you know, pay off or or something, you know, you think the conversation you had this conversation with someone a year ago, but then randomly a year later they put you in touch with someone or they see some advert for some role that you'd be great for or whatever it, it might be that yeah, there are things that have opportunities I've uh, I've had or um, gigs that I've done which I've been put in touch with the person organising it by someone who I actually haven't spoken to for you know multiple years but I'm still somewhere in their subconscious network of people of uh, of who who do what so which I guess which I guess is why it's so important for you to present a really clear message of hi I'm so and so I do these three things yeah, and having a really clear idea of what that is so that when other people have met you, when they see an opportunity that would be great for you, they go, oh, I know so-and-so, they're great at these three things. Um, and yeah, I guess that's part of presenting yourself as an authentic message. This aspect of advocating for yourself as a professional in terms of like time management, but also in terms of pay, mm-hmm. I think that that's also something that's really, really difficult to navigate in the art world, especially as a freelancer. Mm. That's something that I think um, a lot of people really, really struggle with. And this is the first, this is the first year where I've said, uh, said to someone, um, I can't, uh, I can't work on this project without a fee. Up until then, I was just, <laughs> just doing whatever anyone would throw at me. And there, I think there were always gonna be things where you go, do you know what? This doesn't pay at all, or maybe it doesn't pay very well, but, there's a photographer there so I'll have some professional photographs of it or it's being recorded or or you're doing um, it for a friend I'm doing it for a friend me um just for listeners who don't know um Verity was on the panel at the second all about art anniversary party Mm. this year in April 2023 and yeah it was for a teeny tiny fee but it was no (laughs) it was came and did it it was a great time and it was recorded and I got to hang out with some great people but yeah but but again that there was value to that that wasn't monetary value so my my partner uh bless him uh does sometimes ask me like oh how much do you think you've earned this week or today or whatever it is and and it's like because he does like traditional work where you get paid a certain amount for a certain amount of time or whatever it is and it's like well technically I might have invoiced for a certain amount today but you know that was the project that lasted over several months so maybe it works out at like a pence per day or whatever and there are things that you do which take time and hardly pay you anything or don't pay you at all but the value of that might be that that then unlocks something else or you know or I've done this talk for free but now that they are doing a conference somewhere else and they can pay me they want me to come back and do it again or there I think there are always going to be those things but it's the first time yeah that I've that I've said no to something uh, because there wasn't going to be a fee and sometimes you say that to people and they say oh okay well how much would you cost 
and I'm not massively expensive. For anyone listening, I'm not massively expensive. Yeah, uh, neither so, am I. Yeah, so neither am I. Get in touch, <laughs> veritybe at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then maybe you do end up doing something paid. But the problem that opens up is the fact that in the art world, if you want to get to a position, especially for freelance, to a point where you're making money that is not just money that will mean that you can just about scrape by and pay your bills and eat some food at some point, like money that you could go on holiday with or you could buy a car or, or, or like invest in your future. You have to have a long period of time, which I'm learning the hard way now, of doing stuff that doesn't really pay you very much money, but you just got to cross your fingers and hope that, that one of these things you've done will unlock something else. And there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking or oh, maybe I should look into manifesting or or crystals or or maybe <laughs> Let's I should get the tarot cards out yeah maybe maybe I do need to find a god um in order there's just a lot of crossing your fingers and yeah. being like well you know weighing up the value of doing something for free or for not very much in the hope that it yeah unlocks the next thing but we were saying earlier today like a lot of the time something completely random unlocks the next thing Something you were no, you couldn't have controlled at all. It's yes, yeah, someone mentioning your name, and you weren't in the room because they're having a chat with someone else, or someone stumbles across your LinkedIn, but you know you didn't even know they existed before then. Or a lot of stuff is relatively random, so all you can do is give yourself the best shot at being randomly spotted. Yeah, I guess, and um, which isn't actually helpful advice. No, to anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Every and that sucks because yeah. we're we're living by that same like mm. precarious, mm. you know, finger crossing. Yeah. And it's like I wish, I wish I could say something different. I wish, but really, I've just out of pure passion and motivation to make it in this sector. I have just done the very very best that I can, and I see that you do that as well. Mm. And then something does come of it. You work hard and you do make connections and people do see what you do and then you find those that common ground mm. and that's how you build collaborations and work with people and mm. and things like that i mean and you just if you maybe want to talk about it a little bit like with the video at tate for example mm. with tate st ives if you want to talk about that a bit on the podcast we can as an example of how that yeah. you know maybe how that came about yeah i mean yeah, I was just saying, it's, it's funny that every time I've ever spoken to someone and said, like, oh, can I get some advice about your career? It's always the same is, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just cross my cross my fingers and hope something comes of it. Like no one, every time I have a call with anyone about their career, it always ends up with us just talking for half an hour about how terrible the industry is because no one has the right answers. But, but yeah, I mean, I think the Tate gig that I've been doing over the last few months has been really lovely that um, they have been releasing a monthly video for their Tate members and they've got three presenters on board and we each do like a little segment each episode. The second one, which they then released on their YouTube, was a film about uh, the artist Alfred Wallace. And we went down to St. Ives to film that and it was amazing. Yes. And it just felt like... What a dream. It was it was gorgeous. It was just very much like, wow, this is my life. It was it was fabulous. And it was yeah, yeah, just the best team. They're such a lovely, lovely team to work with. And, um, and it felt like the first sort of professionally filmed thing I'd done not just as maybe like an interviewee or for a little section of it. It was, it was amazing. That gig with Tate, which is my favourite thing I've ever done, came from maybe even several years ago now, maybe at least a year ago, I got in touch with someone at Tate to say, hey, I do this thing called Art Laughs. I'd love to work out whether we could do something together, maybe. And they then said, uh, we can't do that right now, um, but they were already scheduled for ages. Um, but have you been in touch with our marketing team or or their um socials team i said no and then they didn't e-introduction several months later i emailed one of them again to say you know i'd love to have a coffee with you just to say hi basically and we had a coffee together to say hi and then several months later they said oh well we're looking for presenters for this thing so why don't you come in and audition for it so actually from starting that chain of talking to the first person at tate to filming that thing in st ives maybe 18 months which is a long time um, it's a long time in the, in the scheme of you know looking back on the like since since I graduated but I keep on forgetting that like unless I'm hit by a bus I'll probably last for a bit longer that life is actually relatively long you can fit quite a lot into it it's like yeah if you do all of the the chat shows because you get massively successful in your early 20s what happens what do you then have to do to keep that up you know yeah. lots of comedians who are now middle-aged when they find that they've now slightly been replaced by these like hot young things what do you then do like it takes a lot to 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 maintain i don't know if you've ever had a conversation with blokes about it i i haven't but i wonder whether this this 30 30 year old thing 
is is female specific or um you know pe- people with the capacity to give birth to children i wonder whether fertility plays into that thing of like why people want to get things done before 30 just seen the barbie movie um no spoilers but this idea that like you know mothers stand back and their daughters mothers stop moving so their daughters can look back and see how far they've come i think for a lot of women there's a real worry that you have to achieve everything you want to achieve because once you have children you might never never achieve anything again which is obviously a, a nonsense but i wonder whether this 30 year old thing is like because after that point you know that might be when you are settling down and having children and then who will who will you be this sense of motherhood being a loss of identity i mean hetty jude has done a fantastic book about motherhood yeah um in the arts and i've had amazing conversations with them um, the artist jess cochran about her experiences of uh, being a mother and an artist i've never seen anyone achieve anything and then gone yeah but they're 40 yeah. or you know oh well that was really impressive it would be more impressive if they were 10 years younger if they're 10 years younger it's like wow that's an amazing thing that yeah no one ever no one ever it like never plays into anyone else's my narrative of anyone else and yeah said said you if if someone could be sent into the future to just check that i achieved some things and they could come back to now and say don't worry you achieve some things um and you achieve uh, some of them when you're 56 great yeah, and like speaking of, you know, Forbes 30 under 30, and and I know a couple of people personally who have been on the list. And I think it's really interesting because you and I were talking about this earlier today as well, is like you never actually know the full extent of someone's efforts, career, life, privilege, circumstances. You you never you never know the full story. Mm. And so I think that sometimes you compare yourself and then you actually are comparing your bad days or your everyday or your regular day with a highlight reel of what Mm. you're seeing from someone else's career. And this is where social media can really allow you to go down that slippery slope. And I think that sometimes that's a danger in terms of mental health and comparison. And so I always remind myself comparison is the thief of joy. Like Mm. I want to be happy for people when I see them succeed. And if I start to feel pangs of jealousy or inadequacy, then I try and self-reflect and look at that within myself to see what's happening within me in order Mm. to not feel that way about someone else's success just Mm. because I'm not having it. Because there is enough room for me and there will be enough room for me in the future. I I mentioned this to you earlier about this idea that, that, that there are people who can't hear other people speak with an accent without accidentally slipping into that accent yeah. as well is that i'm like that with with other people's achievements if i'll be speaking to someone who's you know written their first uh, fiction novel and i'm like oh when am i gonna write my first fiction novel i don't want to write a fiction novel like don't please never make me write one and yet when i'm in a conversation with them i'm like i'm a massive failure because i've not written a fiction novel or you know they've been made the director of a gallery and i'm like god why aren't i a director of a gallery yet it's like i don't i don't i genuinely do not want to be and learning what I don't you, blame you what you <laughs> what you do and don't want is such a key part to yeah that like authenticity of like knowing what you're even aiming for it's just realizing that everyone has yet yeah, been dealt such a different hand of cards in life that they're not even no one's card is from the same deck at all they're not even they're not no, even, not even related yeah no yeah. in no way is it comparable someone someone's got an uno plus four and like mr bun the baker's son and like <laughs> and like yeah like the jack, jack of hearts and yeah. then and someone else has got like 17 different board games worth of cards like it's just you can't compare it at all yeah um and yeah i think it's just social media exacerbates that because isn't it like i always say this and then i worry that because i've said it so much i now think that it's like true but i i feel like at some point i must have read this that that the human brain has not evolved that much since we were living in small communities and living in caves that actually fundamentally our brains are designed to know a couple of dozen people and you know and survive in our community and thrive in that environment so it's absolutely bananas that we're expected to you know keep in touch with hundreds of people and know about the news that's happening on the other side of the world and you know and be trying to network with hundreds of other people on top of that and that actually the human brain is not designed to to hustle it's a it's a fundamentally un unhustleable unnatural organ. thing yeah to like i'm not i'm not i'm not designed for hustling um, i'm designed for walking about and lighting fires um that 
that yeah it's no wonder that you can get into a real habit of like I'm hustling every day and I'm you know sending out all these uh, these networking emails and I'm like making moves and then you're surprised when you have this huge crash that means you can barely like, barely leave the sofa for a month it's like yeah because you're not that's not how people are meant to exist yeah absolutely my life does revolve around not only my full-time job which a lot of people don't think I work. A lot of people think that I don't have a full-time job. Lady of luxury. I do have a full-time job. Yeah. I have to pay my rent. Yeah. <laughs> of course I have a full-time job. I do the podcast on the side and I do any type of panel talks, writing, curatorial projects, anything like that. I do on the side of that. Mm. Plus I run my social media. Mm. So... I have to work a lot and I do it because I love it and I do it because it gives me this incredible amount of motivation that I don't know if I'd find elsewhere. Mm. But oh my God, sometimes you just need to take a day or two to rest. And it was actually a previous podcast guest, um, Millie Foster, who is the director of Jillian Jason Gallery. And she said, you need to find time to bring rest into your schedule and into your, and manage that into your time because if you don't do it, your body will do it for you mm. and you're going to be forced to take rest. Mm. And I think that's so, so important to keep in mind for anyone who's like getting to the point where they're starting their careers or I'd say like getting a little bit to like mid, not mid career. I kind of hate that term a little bit, but like, cause what does that really mean? Mm. Um, but kind of growing into the, in their careers, no longer really like at a starter level, but kind of, you know, mid-junior level of whatever they're doing, mm. that's when I feel like it really starts to, like, get difficult to navigate. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, if you are knackered and have, you know, you're working all hours of the day and the opportunity that you actually want comes up, but you you, you can't take it because you've got no time and you're exhausted, then what was what was the becoming exhausted for? that you know if you're working towards this big goal but you're working so hard that even if it turned up you wouldn't be able to do it then then yeah it's not feasible but I always thought like, no I don't like doing that I, I just don't like relaxing I always need to be doing something but I think it it all stems from this fear of falling behind which is in itself comes from this fallacy that there is that there is a way to fall behind there is no set timeline and there's no set order to unlock things and you know often we we speak to people who are doing the thing we want to do and it's like what what are the levels you have to unlock in what order and for how long and whatever and like no one has the answers because there is no set pattern to do any of this yeah um it's not like yeah if you're a lawyer you know there are certain exams you pass and then you set some other exams then you do some more exams and you know, but, you know <laughs> it, like and, and that's yeah. and that's how that pans out but it does not work that way in this industry and i think that this fear of like but if i stop posting once a day on Instagram or if I yeah if I start doing a podcast but then stop for a bit or whatever it is there's this huge fear of and it'll all have been for nothing which is even more galling when you've already exhausted yourself and upset yourself and you've found it really mentally difficult how hard you've already been working the idea that and then it's for nothing is the word is, is the fear is more so than trying and not succeeding it's the like it's the having a brief moment to yourself and then everything is you know washed away in the sand that's not the right metaphor for it but, you know it's um the, yeah yeah i think the worst the the fear of that is the fear of you've worked so hard and then you ruined it by not continuing to hustle by not being consistent by not being disciplined and those those aren't the things that, that are going to trip you up um along the way but i think the fear of you know, I've already given so much of myself and my time and uh, to what I'm working on and, you know, some some lapse in giving some, self, some time back to myself or, you know, saying the wrong thing in an email or like not going to some private view means that then you're back at square one. I think square one is very frightening when you when you feel like you've been building for a long time or what feels like a long time. I'm sure that in five years time, I'll listen back to this and like, haha, she thought that she'd been working for a long time. Uh, but, but yeah, I think a lot of it, the the hustle thing is, is it's a, it's addictive in the- You get the like hits of- every time like something happens and you 
you know, someone confirms something and someone, you know, you get an opportunity or you get this feature or you get this shout out or you get this connection or whatever. And it's like, oh yeah, that's what I'm working towards. And it's these like little things that you build up to. Um, And so that's also what makes it really addictive is because when you do it right or when you hit the sweet spot, which I don't think I've hit, I think like just disclaimer, um, but I feel like there are some professionals out there who started something like an Instagram account or a podcast and it's just gone like through the roof in terms of like the attention that it's received. And then from that, tons of Instagram followers, from that, then a book deal, from that, then uh, a TV series, you know, who knows, Mm -hmm. right? And um, I feel like I'm hitting, I'm doing something right, Mm -hmm. but you know, it just really depends on on what you do and a lot of it is it's strategy it's thinking about things but it's also a bit of luck it's a bit of you know what we talked about earlier about the who you know thing and so it's really difficult to keep all of that in mind when you're also you know getting messages of praise getting messages of you're so inspiring getting messages of oh I want to give you this opportunity and then you get these hits and then like of, mm-hmm. of like oh yeah I'm, I'm succeeding people think I'm succeeding and then and then you go and go and go and go, but then again, coming back to being authentic and being yourself, mm. you it's sometimes easy to lose yourself along the way a little bit and lose w- what was your ultimate goal? What is it that you actually want? What is it that you find interesting? Mm. What is it that you enjoy doing? And it's never enough, right? Like anyone yeah. who's, you know, they've, they've done the, they've had a successful Instagram account, so they've got a book deal. After the book deal, they're like, well, what do I, what, What's what now? And I'm exactly the same. It's like um, when we had, we got the date in the diary for um, doing an art laugh at the National Gallery uh, back in spring. And um, I had to wait until they'd posted it on their website to say, you know, this is happening on whichever date it was. And then I posted about it on Instagram. And loads of people saying, this is amazing. Like, aren't you so proud of yourself? Like, what an achievement. This is like, you've worked so hard. Like, congratulations. And already by that point, I was like, of what? Like, in my head, it's been in the calendar for ages. Like, that's the only thing I've got in the diary. So like, I've not achieved anything. Like, all you know, I, I, I did a filming thing and I, even by the time I was back on the train coming back from London to Southampton, I was like, I'm, I've got nothing interesting to do in the diary for, for months or whatever it was that like, that it's, it is never enough. And you know, I did the, the tape filming job and I was like, well, I just got to hope that they asked me to do another one, you know, that, that it is never enough. And it's so hard to sit with your, achievements because I think also we're massively discouraged to do that um as I think particularly as uh like for femme individuals it's like that you are discouraged from being proud of yourself uh because it's cocky that it's so it's not actually really about your reality it's about this you know this uh pressure that you set up for yourself um yeah it is it is never enough and it's always nice but yeah if someone says like you look like you're doing great it's like well I'm glad that it looks that way because I'm really sad <laughs> like I'm glad that I really I'm... just want to like sit in like a bathrobe with some popcorn and watch a movie yeah, I'd like to rock, like... I'd like to rock back and forth in a dark room please yeah like sometimes the... I think and this is where like you know I was really happy to come to Southampton because like tomorrow I'm gonna just take some time to go and do my own thing and mm. and um breathe in some fresher air than Mm. the London air and I think that sometimes I do fantasize a little bit about just escaping for like two weeks and not having anything no responsibilities no emails no nothing and just sitting on the seaside and reading and writing and drinking wine and drinking tea and I don't know why it involves so much drinking things but you know and or taking a fucking bubble bath yeah I don't have a bathtub so uh, I fantasize about that a lot it's Mm. just like I just want some bubbles in my life (laughs) um and so yeah it's it's thinking about all of these things that I think you know people who see the Instagram or who see um my LinkedIn or whatever else I'm doing it's like yeah it looks great and yeah I feel really really proud of the career that I've achieved thus far and I hope to achieve more however don't forget that some days I don't want to get out of bed some days Mm. I'm so exhausted that it keeps me from getting out of bed even if I'd want to Mm. this is not an every week occurrence for me but it is an occurrence some days 
I cry for no reason. Mm. And then I find out that there was a reason because mm. <laughs> it either reveals itself or, you know, it's hormones or mm. whatever, because it, it does happen. It does affect you. Mm. Um, it is on a side note, it is absolutely bananas that people with periods are expected to behave the same way throughout the whole month I know. because your I hormone know. levels are make you a completely different person yeah. at different times. So this, this idea that like, what I should be able to do as good work on day one of my cycle as day fifteen, as day twenty seven is 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 um yeah ludicrous. Um as a side as a no, side it's, note. It's actually but, a really important note. Mm. Like I get massive migraines before mm. before my period mm. and um it makes it difficult for me to work. Mm. Obviously I push through but and I take a pain pill, but sometimes I just want to stay home. Sometimes I just mm. think my head is throbbing like mm behind my eyes is hurting mm. my stomach hurts because you know things are getting into motion like I want to cry mm. and if you yell at me again yeah. <laughs> not that yeah. anyone yells yeah. at me that, that that's kind of over exaggerated but and if, it, I, if it, I get a yeah. snippy email again yeah then I'm I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna kick off I, <laughs> which I never do but mm. you know it just feels that way it feels like you have to deal with so much more when you have to deal with physical pain mm. during your work day and that on a regular basis. I think mm. that people really underestimate that pain and underestimate what it does to you mentally, physically, like mm. all of that with our cycle. Yeah. I think I think I was speaking to some friends about recently actually was this idea that it's if we go back to maybe our grandparents' generation, even though there were women uh who worked after having children, it certainly wasn't the the default position like i mean when my grandmother went back to work after having her children people would say to my grandfather i can't believe you let her go back to work that so even though there were women doing full-time jobs and being mothers it certainly wasn't the norm so we've only we're really only generation two or maybe three that expects women to to quote unquote have it all and so it's no wonder that childbearing folk get to the age where we're told that our fertility will uh, dip and and have complete crises because it's like I'm meant to have it all like sometimes I think about my life and I'm like well you know these are this is the time scale for me like having having children and and this is what I want in my family life and then this is the time scale of what the things I want to do in my career and what I want to achieve and then I go oh shit like that's meant to be done by one person <laughs> like oh those have got to happen at the same time is that it's actually a massively new phenomenon to be this idea of balancing everything it's not it's not really been done for you know it's certainly not been done for a hundred like a hundred years or uh, you know we've not got massive experience in it as as a as the human race yeah um so i can't remember where i saw it but it was this like statement about the hours that are worked in a normal work week because i think this was in relation to like introducing the four-day work week which mm. i'm totally for by the way, um, but the hours of a week worked, that's actually as someone who has a full-time job and supports their entire family while someone else takes on the full responsibilities mm. at home. So that oh, at-home yeah. labor. The, the nine to five was designed for men with wives. Yeah. Because the wives did all the other things. Yeah. So if two people are working a nine to five, who takes care of the housework? Mm. Who takes care of that? And that predominantly falls on women. Mm. Was there a bit of research recently about the fact that across all um, ages, across all races, all genders, all everything, having a child decreases the quality of your relationship, that it will make it, it does make it worse. And, you know, the idea that you might have to be grappling with the, oh, I'm thinking about having a baby and I'm having this relationship issue and you know, having these these like really big things in your life. This is a huge, huge uh, thing to make any decision about in your, in your life and then also to be worrying about going to a meeting with a client and you know and being on your period and crying but also trying to deal with your place in the world and wor worrying about the you know the climate catastrophe and all, and then all the while being like I'd really like to be an author like how is <laughs> how is anyone meant to do, do any of those things and the best thing you can do I guess is just be completely open with the fact that it's like oh this is really difficult and rubbish so I'm just doing my best to have a yeah. have as an okay as the time as possible I mean um I got great advice from uh, Laura Mulhern, who run, runs Plan Make Do, um, who was my mentor uh, for a period of time through I Like Networking. 
and she would say to me don't don't be a busy fool don't be running about and stressing yourself out and being so busy you can't do anything and burning yourself out for nothing that you know is everything you're doing working towards the goals that are important to you like if you don't want to be a writer why are you stressing about whether this pitch for a book has been accepted or not like don't why are you being a bit like don't be a busy fool like it's better to be to have more time work dedicated to a few projects than trying to do it all and yeah part of that authenticity is working out like what is it you want to do and it's as important to work out what you don't want to do as as what you do it's it's I love it when I think I want to do something and it turns out I was wrong yeah, I really, really love that motto, don't be a busy fool. Mm. I think that a lot of people could really take that advice mm. because I think people lose themselves in that cycle and they do stress themselves out about everything, but mm. they don't actually look at the bigger picture and think, how is this, is there a better way to be doing this? Mm. And if not, is this actually serving the purpose that it should? Yeah. And a lot of the time overworking yourself is ju- is just, is like, you know, some people, I'm sure love their jobs that require 70 hours of their time every week but I've always found in the periods where I've worked non-stop and you know burnt myself out and have been like at the end of my rope I've been doing that in the hope that someone goes you're doing a really good job and like wow that's really impressive and like I'm really proud of you and that's gone really well like it's all for it's essentially like someone save me like you know I'm working so hard surely this is going to bring about this mythical big break or this bit of praise I'm after or this new audience whatever it is is like you're working yourself to the bone to in the hope that like surely this is enough you know how could anyone possibly work harder than this and and that's just not how it works is that yeah you know you can work yourself to the bone and then even if the yeah the right opportunity did opportunity did turn up um I, I can't sadly I've passed away yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah. sadly I I now live on the floor yeah that you know whenever I've been in these hyper work states it's never resulted in anything good yeah I've had to take a bit of time off and then have come back with a bit of a clearer head and and something I learned from the times that I have burnt out like when I first moved to Southampton um was when something stops being fun give it a break and it's only when you have these periods where you accept like I'm actually not feeling very creative these days so I shouldn't sit down and try and force myself to think of a podcast idea or of some content or do networking because it's just not, I'm just not in that phase right now. And if you give yourself time to recover from feeling like that, then there'll be times where you're feeling massively creative yeah. and or personable or whatever it is. That If you give your mind that space to play a little bit because you're not constantly mm-hmm. running on on like you know, reserves trying to, to think and do and think and do and think and do. If you actually give your mind that time to be creative and that Mm. air to breathe, Mm. then that will allow Mm. things like the juices to really start flowing and creative ideas to come back to you. I see. I stopped, I stopped doing these and the YouTube interviews, even though they were going quite well and no one was watching them, but the people who did watch them liked them. Um, and you know, this whole thing of, um, you know, if I had carried on doing them once a week for, over the last two years maybe something would have come from it but I just just ended up really not enjoying them um so I stopped doing them and because I stopped doing them I was like oh maybe I'll do a live show of it and and then that was its own thing that there's (laughs) I always say I'm a big fan of quitting I think everyone should quit most things most of the time um just to give yourself a break from that Thing. I think there's no shame in starting something and then stopping it. Like I love it when I see people launch stuff and then stop. Like when people are like, I'm going to do this monthly and then they do it for a few months and then they stop. I love that for them. Cause it's like, well, clearly it wasn't bringing them any joy or doing what they had hoped it had, it would do. So just, I just stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, stopping doing those videos has put me in a mindset now where I'm like, oh, maybe I could start doing them again, you know? And no one is going to be like, well, we didn't do one for 18 months. Like, no one, no one is that invested. Um, and yeah, it gets, sort of go, comes down to that thing of, you know, no one is thinking about you as much as you are thinking about you. Yeah, um, absolutely. And see, so yeah, I think often in the art world, there is this sense of like, everyone is talking to everyone and everyone knows everyone. And, you know, if you wrong one person, then you'll be out and like all this gossip. And, and it's like, yeah, but very few people care enough to to 
to bring someone up negatively in conversation or like it's so rare that anyone thinks about anyone but themselves yep. uh, for, for a meaningful Absolutely. amount of time. Absolutely, um, which might be uh, a comfort to some people and might not to some others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? You know, all, all press is good press, but also like, why aren't you thinking about me all the time? Yeah, but, exactly, know, just, goodness. Yeah. So Verity, to wrap up this episode, mm. if you could pick one artist from art history to have dinner with, who would it be and why? I... I often with these questions in podcasts where it's like pick an artist, I try to think of someone sort of niche and uh, niche and deep. Um, but I think I'd just pick Banksy um, and not even to like reveal who he is, like it's sort of end of a Scooby-Doo episode. But I think that he is someone who is so well-traveled and has all these experiences. And um, I love street art and I just love to... Uh, yeah have an opportunity to to speak about that with uh with Banksy I think that'd be really interesting Banksy's relationship with the with the contemporary art world as well would be something that'd be really interested in speaking to him about because it's like other artists really play to the commercial art world whereas Banksy at least gives this a a suggestion that he's like really anti all of it even though he massively will like obviously be capitalizing on it but he gives this idea that he's very like anti all that and I think that he'd have interesting um interesting points to make on on how the art world is run and like finding out who does know who he is and all this kind of thing amazing well verity thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing all your insights and uh yeah it was amazing thanks so much and that is it for today on all about art if you enjoyed this episode please leave me a rating or a review as it helps more people discover the show also, feel free to share with your friends, or if you share on social media, tag me and get in touch. Thank you so much for listening.